You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I was planning to do this podcast today anyway, but now that I totally screwed up the other one I was going to do, this one becomes a little bit more urgent. We had scheduled an interview today, and I won't tell you who with. We were pretty darn excited about it. And I sat down in the recording studio part of the office and, you know, got over here 15 minutes before it was going to start and got my computer loaded and got everything set up and could not find the cord, like the essential cord that connects my Skype connection on my computer to my recording equipment. That's odd because the cord only does one thing. Like it's not a cord you would use somewhere else. It's not like I would take it and use it in my car or on my headphones or, you know, take it home. And I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere for quite a long time. So I'm looking around, I'm like, where is this cord? And it's not like I keep a real messy office. I mean, I'm a pretty clean guy in this part of the office, especially because I haven't been using it a whole lot. Uh, it's not like there's a ton of stuff over here. I'm panicking, like, where, where the heck is this cord? I cannot find it. And I actually ran home, thought, okay, for some reason, uh, did this cord wind up at home? Went there, searched through my office, searched through my room, searched through my bags, searched through everything. This cord is gone. It is, it is disappeared. And because it's disappeared, I can't connect anybody in on my recording equipment and I can't record a podcast. It's just like maddening. So I'm going to have to order a new cord. In the meantime, you're going to get me and uh, we're going to kind of pick off where we left off a few weeks ago talking about the infrastructure crisis. And at the time, I kind of previewed, like, we're going to, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you know, we're going to do an infrastructure surge with the bureaucracy and the systems we have, not the ones we wish we had. And so if we're going to be limited to those constraints, how would you do this? How would you spend a trillion dollars today and not have it, in a sense, destroy the whole thing, mess the whole thing up? I actually put together a letter for the president, kind of outlining uh, just some principles that I would look at. And I started this by just noting, we're looking at spending this trillion dollars. We're not really asking the serious question, you know, why is our infrastructure in such bad condition? Why have we gotten to this point? And to use a, a real estate term, I try to communicate to the president that America's infrastructure right now today is a non-performing asset. It's a non-performing asset in the sense that the cost of serving and maintaining it and replacing it and taking care of it and meeting all our obligations exceeds the cash flow. And not only does it exceed the cash flow, it actually exceeds the wealth being created. If America's infrastructure were actually a private real estate investment, this would be a failing, failing endeavor. It doesn't work the way we've done it. And I think it's important to grasp that when we're looking at the ways we should go about doing things today. Because of course, if it's a non-performing asset, the worst thing you can do is just pour a bunch more money into it, right? 
you have a casino that's failing to draw an example that may be familiar to our president. You, you buy a casino that winds up to be a bad investment. It doesn't work out. You either can cut your losses and move on. You can completely restructure and try to essentially solve the problems that way. Or you can just continue to dump more of your wealth into it until that's all gone. And then you wind up in the situation where you are, you know, a billion dollars in debt and looking at, you know, a bunch of bankers sitting across the table saying, what do we do with this non-performing asset? That's essentially where we are with the nation's infrastructure. So let me give you an example, one that I've used before, but just as like the concrete one where we have really good numbers. When we go to the city of Lafayette, Louisiana, a city of around 200 some thousand, uh, we did the study there where we essentially looked at the replacement cost of all of their infrastructure. And we mapped it geographically and we, we did some analysis. But basically at the top line, you have $32 billion of public infrastructure that has been built in the city of Lafayette. That's a, that's a huge sum of money. The tax base that has been created with that, the actual wealth that we can go out and tax to serve and maintain that is only 16 billion, half of the actual public investment that's been made. Ponder that for a second. I'm going to do a, a series here on the site coming up because people have asked me to talk about incremental development and, and what that actually means and, and how we actually envision it. I'm going to start that series by talking about redevelopment ratios. I wrote a while back in a piece about density on how a ratio of value to infrastructure of, of 10 to 1 is pretty much the minimum that you can have. Uh, something more like 20 to 1 or 40 to 1 is more stable. That means if if you have $32 billion of public infrastructure like Lafayette does, you should have a tax base of somewhere around $320 billion. Instead, they have 16. So not only is their ratio less than 10 to 1, which I think is the, the kind of critical default, it's actually 1 to 2, right? It's way, way the other way. It's way underwater. When we're talking about redevelopment, we're really talking about a lot of the same kind of factors. What is the amount that the land is worth? What is the amount that the improvements are worth? And what is the amount of those costs in the transaction? And when those ratios get too low, then you see in a normal market properties change over. It's not happening today. And it's not happening largely because of the way we've gone about constructing our cities, the things we've chosen to subsidize, and the fact that we've not allowed kind of market forces to correctly value land. My note to the president is like, look, this Lafayette case study is not an anomaly. These kind of imbalances are things we see all over the country. And there's a good reason for this because, you know, spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure in an infrastructure surge is very consistent with, and it, it might be an extension of, it might be a, a larger example, but it's, it's very consistent with the mindset of how we funded infrastructure really since the Great Depression. We come in with large amounts of federal money. We come in with subsidies and programs. We come in uh, with driving down financing costs. And we induce local projects that build infrastructure and then, uh, as a result, create growth and development and what have you. 
in exchange for that, local governments get all this growth. They get the permit fees. They get the new property tax and the new sales tax and, and what have you. They take on the long-term responsibility to serve and maintain all this stuff. Uh, you guys have listened to this podcast for a while. You've heard this before. From a psychological standpoint, uh, this is called temporal discounting. People, uh, humans, you, me, all of us, we're all the same. We're wired because of evolutionary wiring in our DNA. We are wired to highly value positive feedback today and to deeply discount negative feedback into the future. Uh, you can think of primitive humans in the middle of the food chain instead of the top of the food chain. And, and you didn't have to stop and ponder real deeply uh, the impacts of overindulging one day on your long-term health. Your long-term health was not something you <laughs> thought a lot about because most people didn't make it to the long term. We are the byproducts of that construction. And so when we're given the choice to sit and watch a basketball game and eat ice cream, I will acknowledge doing this, as opposed to, you know, taking the dogs for a walk. Uh, when we're given the opportunity to go out for lunch instead of go to the gym during lunch, it's very easy for us to justify or to prefer the one that has the pleasant, nice, easy feedback. Because the harder thing, it might be a little bit harder today, but the, the payoff for it is long, long into the future. And, and not only that, but sitting down and watching the basketball game and eating ice cream may lead to heart disease. Smoking may lead to cancer, but it doesn't lead to cancer today. It leads to heart disease. It leads to cancer decades into the future. And so it's easy, easy for us to discount that. The same kind of mental thing goes into our building of infrastructure. When the federal government comes in and can pay for 90%, 95%, even 80%, even 50% of today, and we can find creative ways to make a local match, whether it's, you know, borrow money at subsidized rates on these, you know, national trading platforms that the federal government's helped create and set up, uh, whether it's, you know, have developers pay for it, uh, which means people building homes pay for it in a nationally subsidized mortgage market. Uh, you can see, you know, we've come up with all kinds of creative ways to pay for things when they're new. What we have not done is found a way to go back and actually fix them, actually maintain them. If we don't understand that, we're destined to use this infrastructure surge in ways that are going to make our problems worse. I would like to think that the president and his team uh, genuinely want to make things better. Uh, I would like to think that the president and his team, using a real estate kind of background mindset, would understand what a non-performing asset is, would grasp that just continuing to pour money into it is not really a long-term solution, and that we actually need to kind of nudge our system uh, in a different direction. How are we going to do that? There's a part of me that's the idealist, right? Like, we need to <laughs> rip this thing apart and completely restructure it along a new set of, of very logical and rational approaches. That is the theoretical, the classroom solution to this, right? And, you know, the people in this audience and the people who are my friends who have heard me say things like that and, and talk in that way uh, will 
rightfully come back and say, you know, Chuck, you're such an idealist. Um, that's not how the world works. You're not going to get that kind of radical approach approved, uh, maybe over time, maybe over a long period of time, but it's not going to happen overnight. You've got to be more pragmatic. So here's Chuck Marone, the pragmatist, right? And I've come up with a handful of things that we should do right now. If we're going to spend a trillion dollars in a surge over the next few months, how would we do that in a way that would not double down on that temporal discounting tendency, uh, would not put our cities deeper into a hole, and would actually kind of help us move in a direction where you know we're going to start digging our way out of this mess? I came up with four things right off the bat that if you were sitting down with like a matrix and saying, okay, how are we going to judge what project should get this trillion dollars? How, how are we going to decide where this money should be spent? I came up with four ways to prioritize. The first one I think is pretty obvious and, and non-controversial. We need to prioritize maintenance over new capacity. With so many non-performing assets, it's really irresponsible for us to go out and build additional capacity. You can't look at the system today and say, you know, we're lacking in capacity. There might be small little parts where we're lacking in capacity, but really when you step back and look at the system in its totality, we're flooded with capacity. What, what we are lacking is productive use of that capacity, right? We're, we're not making very good use of it. The way you don't make anything worse you might not be making it better, but the way you dedicate yourself to not making it worse is that you prioritize maintenance over new capacity. Uh, if we're going to spend money at the federal level, let's spend it fixing things as opposed to building new things that we you know, don't have the money to fix. The second one, now we start to get a little bit more, I think, challenging for uh, federal government. Nonetheless, I think this one is really important. We need to prioritize small projects over large. You know, small projects not only spread the wealth, which actually is a, is a rather important thing in a political process, but they've got a much greater potential for positive return. And at the end of the day, have a far lower risk. Uh, there have been numerous studies, if you're into studies and not just anecdotal arguments, there have been a number of studies that have shown that the bigger the project not only the greater the overrun in dollar terms, uh, but the greater the overrun in percentage terms. So in other words, a billion dollar project is not only more likely to overrun more in dollar terms than, let's say, a million dollar project, but it's actually more likely to overrun in terms of total percentage than the million dollar project. Your, your billion dollar project is more likely to wind up being a $2 billion project than your $1 million project is likely to wind up being a $2 million project. You follow me? So as projects grow, not only do they become, you know, more costly, but they become more volatile. Our ability to estimate them goes down. The likelihood of having some type of cascading problem goes way up. And your return on the dollar goes way, way down. We need to favor projects that are small. And if you put those two together now, we're talking about maintenance projects that are small. This is starting to feel like maybe we could do something not destructive, right? 
Now, let's add the third thing. And I, I think this is the one that a lot of people, when I wrote this, keyed in on because I hadn't really thought much about it. The third one, we should spend a lot more money below ground than above. When we actually step back and look at our cities, a lot of what we focus on is is transportation. Stuff on the surface, right? Sidewalks, roads, potholes. When we talk about infrastructure, the images that were shown and the images that come to mind is the pothole on our street or the road project somewhere. Those are the really visible things. But if you actually talk to engineers or talk to, you know, maintenance people who take care of these systems, they will tell you that the stuff underground is really not only more critical, but is in a more critical state. You have pipes in cities that are over a hundred years old, uh, stuff that is leaking, stuff that's falling apart. Uh, the thing about underground systems is that they tend to, in a kind of a, a funnel way, they kind of build on each other. So for example, you can look at a city like Lafayette. I want to say about half of Lafayette's uh, sewer pipe underground is rather new PVC. You know, stuff that is going to last a long time, very low maintenance, is going to, you know, serve them well long into the future. There will be problems. There will be things they have to do to maintain it. But it won't be like systematically failing anytime soon. But all of that is outside of and essentially upstream of uh, their core original system, which is largely clay pipe. The clay pipe is cracked. It's settled. It's leaking groundwater. It's not reliable. One of those sections go out. Not only does it screw up that section, but it backs everything else up, potentially for miles and miles. That's where you have the critical issue in the core parts of the city where they've been allowed to essentially go bad and nothing's been done really to maintain them. I think we should be spending at least $5 below ground for every dollar we spend above ground. If we could do that, uh, if we were replacing small projects underground, it's pretty hard to do something dumb, right? It's pretty hard to do something that's going to be really, really destructive. I want to say one other thing about the above ground stuff too. As many of you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I say this. I'm not going to say a huge fan. That's the wrong word because I, I, you know, I find it intriguing. I'm not a bobo for automated vehicles for, you know, the Google car. I, I don't think that this is going to be transformative in the way that a lot of people think it's going to be transformative. Nonetheless, the range of outcomes that you have above ground from cars that can now park themselves and, you know, continually circle the block and uh, the elimination of congestion or, you know, the, the automated fleet of truck drivers, a taxi driver, wh whatever it is, whatever your fantasy is, there's a broader range of outcomes that can happen above ground than will ever happen below ground. You can go to ancient Rome and look at their sewer system. You can go to Jerusalem and look at their sewer system. And, you know, you're essentially looking at the same technology that we use today, at least the same, you know, mechanisms. It's this magical thing called gravity. Water goes downhill. Gravity pulls it downhill. And so when you put a sewer system in, you put in a pipe with a grade on it. So that stuff runs downhill. This is really the same kind of thing that we've been doing for thousands of years. Yes, we have different kinds of pipe now. 
yes, uh, you know, we have different pump technology. We're able to pump sewage and water in ways that they didn't in the past. Yet, you're going to find very little difference between what we're doing today and what we did thousands of years ago. And, you know, following kind of Nassim Taleb's thinking of the longer it's been around, the longer it was likely to continue to be around, we're likely to be doing the same thing for a long time into the future. In other words, if you're trying to decide whether to spend a dollar underground or a dollar above ground, there is a chance that your dollar above ground is going to be obsolete in the next generation. Uh, there's zero chance. There's, there's hardly any chance at all that the dollar you spend underground is going to be obsolete in that same period of time. So let's put our money underground. The fourth one then ties in with these first three, prioritizing maintenance, small projects, below ground. And then the fourth one, we really need to prioritize neighborhoods that are more than 75 years old. In a very rough sense, with the modeling that, that we've done with Urban 3, Joe Minicozzi, Josh McCarty, and their group, uh, what we find again and again and again is that pre-World War II development patterns are financially really productive. Even when they're run down, even when they're neglected, even when they are the, solely where the poor people live in town, what we find again and again and again is that these places produce enormous amounts of wealth when compared to the amount of cost associated with them. They are, in a word, productive. Financially, they're very, very productive. We can see that here in my little hometown of Brainerd, uh, where the oldest neighborhoods, the poorest neighborhoods are some of the most productive neighborhoods in town. The brand new stuff that we built out on the edge with the McMansions and the cul-de-sacs and the sweeping roadways have enormous costs and very low return comparably. We can go to Lafayette. We can go to Memphis, Tennessee. We can literally look at hundreds of cities. They might even be in the thousands now that Urban 3 has actually modeled, but I, I've worked with them on hundreds, hundreds of cities across this country where we see the same thing over and over. If you're trying to discern between where to spend a million dollars and option A is the frontage road or the cul-de-sac or the sweepy, curvy, you know, suburban street in the homes that are 25, 30 years old or the urban neighborhood that's run down, neglected, full of poor people, you know, yet has the bones of a neighborhood that is, you know, 75 years or older. You are going to be way further ahead spending the money in that old neighborhood. Think about this now. If we are going to do an infrastructure surge, if we could spend that money on small maintenance projects below ground in old established neighborhoods, we're going to have far more winners than losers. We're going to be doing projects that actually pay off, that actually create wealth, that don't move our cities backward, but actually have the potential to move them ahead. Now, I, I think we could do things a lot better, right? Like I think we could retool our bureaucracies to actually do some return on investment calculations. I, I think we need to have uh, local land use coordinated with this. I think cities need to have incremental investment by right and all kinds of reform at HUD and at, you know, Fannie and Freddie and uh, the way we finance housing, uh, Wall Street reform. I, I mean, we, we could go on and on. There's a litany of things that need to be done. But we don't have time to do those things, right? Uh, we don't have time to do those things before we're going to do this infrastructure surge. 
So if we got to get the money out the door and you're saying, Chuck, what's the filter that we should use to discern what projects get funded and what don't? These four things, prioritize maintenance, small projects, below ground, in neighborhoods more than 75 years old. We do those things and we really can't go wrong. There's a handful of other things that I think are well worth considering that would, again, be kind of short-term pragmatic steps we could take short of like a complete and total overhaul of the system before we spend this money. You're, you're telling me we got to get this money out the door. Chuck, we don't have time to be thoughtful. We don't have time for reform. Uh, we don't have time to get this perfectly correct. We just got to get the money out the door. Okay, I just gave you four criteria that I think is going to result in more hits than misses. Let me give you a couple other things that we should really be doing in conjunction with this. And the first one is a really simple idea, but it would take a little bit to implement. And that is that we need to require states and municipalities, local governments that receive funds to do accrual accounting. Accrual accounting, as opposed to cash accounting, you can think of it as a long-term accounting process versus you know, a day-to-day, -day, do I have money in my pocket kind of accounting. Let me contrast businesses with government here for a second. If a business runs a pension account, a pension fund, and the business promises as part of that pension fund that they will pay a certain amount of money, they actually have to sit down then and accrue that liability on their balance sheet. They actually have to report that. If they're a publicly traded company, they have to actually report that to shareholders. At some point in the future, we have promised to pay this much money. And then they can count as an asset somewhere else, like here's how much money we actually have to make good on that. From an accrual accounting standpoint, you can do things like say, okay, we had this much money and we're anticipating this much return every year over this number of years. And here's when we expect people to start taking money out. And this is not like an exact mathematical formula where you're going to get, you know, precision, but it at least sits down and like accounts for liabilities that you have coming up in the future, accrual accounting. If you're government, you don't have to do that. You do a budget. Uh, the budget says, here's how much money we have coming in next year. Here's how much money we have going out next year. Here's our budget, go. And governments will often, you know, when it comes to pensions, have a pension fund and they'll get a report and it'll say we're this much underfunded or this much whatever, but it's not showing up on their balance sheet in a sense the way it would for a private business. That's because governments do accounting differently and have pushed to do accounting differently. I think the really pernicious thing is when it comes to infrastructure because governments count on their balance sheet, they count their roads, their streets, their sewers, their they count all of that as, as an asset. Let's say just in a rudimentary sense, a developer comes in and builds a, a dead end cul-de-sac and puts in the sewer and the water and the roads and the streets and the curb and the sidewalk. And all, all that is paid for by a developer. And let's say that comes to a million dollars. Well, the city would show a million dollar asset now on their balance sheet. Like the city has spent nothing, but they're a, a million dollars wealthier. And then, you know, you would look at that and say, okay, well, we're going to depreciate that over 20 years or 25 years. And so every year that asset would become worth like slightly less, a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less until at some point in the future, it becomes worth zero. 
And the idea is that, you know, this is an, an, an asset. This is something that the city has. And, you know, you account for it by showing it as a, as a positive and then depreciating it over time. Obviously, what's, what's wrong with that, right? It, first of all, ignores the fact that it's not really an asset. I mean, if cities own a computer or own a fire truck or, you know, something that truly is an asset, it has a, a characteristic that a road doesn't have. You can actually sell it. <laughs> you can actually take that fire truck and say, okay, it's an asset. Uh, we're going to put it on the block and actually sell it now. You know, the city owns a backhoe. We're going to take that backhoe and, and auction it off. It's an asset. You can't do that with a road. You can't do that with a piece of sewer pipe. You, you can't say, all right, um, we're kind of hard up for cash. Uh, we're going to take this asset we have over here in this road and we're going to auction it off and, and then, uh, someone will come up and pick up that road and bring it to their city and they'll have the road. It doesn't work that way. The other thing that is kind of pernicious about this way of accounting is that what happens when the road reaches the, the 20 year mark or the 25 year mark and, you know, you've fully depreciated it out. Well, the road now needs to be fixed, right? It's now fallen apart. You actually need to go out and spend money to repair it. And all of a sudden now, it's no longer an asset. It just magically becomes what? A liability. It magically like overnight becomes a liability because you've got to go out and spend money to fix it. Now, do you have to do this? Uh, no, <laughs> you can, as a government, choose not to fix your roads. You can choose not to fix your sewer pipes. You can choose to essentially default on your promises and commitments that you've made. Governments have that ability. Uh, but from an accounting standpoint, when governments actually do accrual accounting, what they do is they have to actually account for this stuff. They have to account for these promises that they've made. So instead of going out and saying the road is an asset, you'd say the road on day one is a liability, was zero. And every year that liability grows because we're getting closer and closer to the day when we have to actually go out and make good on that promise. That's a more honest assessment of where we're at. It's a more honest accounting of what we've done. And really when we're talking about projects, especially the bigger the projects get and, and the stuff that is based on, you know, new building things that are new, if we account for our assets and our liabilities using accrual accounting, what it will do is it will focus us to acknowledge these projects that actually make us underwater. It will deal with that temporal discounting problem by actually having us uh, book uh, this future liability instead of pretending that somehow it's a short-term, near-term asset. All right. That's the kind of two things require states to do accrual accounting and then require municipalities to account for infrastructure as a liability instead of an asset. Those are two like little reforms we could do while we're handing out this money. Hey, if you want this money, you got to do uh, these things in your accounting. The third one I would do is that when we're doing these infrastructure projects at the federal level, we actually should require a return on investment analysis. It doesn't have to be overly complicated, uh, but it does have to be something that's real, not something that's fake 
<laughs> like the stuff, you know, we just showed you in Shreveport with the I, uh, the I-49 connector project. It's got to actually account for, uh, revenues coming in, uh, revenues going out, and there needs to be a financial return on investment calculation. I'm not suggesting that this should be some type of binding thing. I'm not suggesting at this point, cause you know, we got to get this money out the door, right? We've got this urgent need to, uh, to spend a trillion dollars. We don't have time to institute a bunch of reforms, but if Chuck Marone is able to kind of insert some thoughts here and nudge things in a certain way, I just want cities to sit down and calculate how much money they need to bring in in order to make these projects actually pay for themselves. If we did that, that would be a, a revolution in the way we actually ask questions at the local level. Um, just a final thought here, because I do think this is important. One of the things that we heard over and over again in our series of interviews on the infrastructure crisis, we heard people say, besides the Ray LaHood, we just need a big pot of cash, right? We just need a big pile of money. Most everybody else said a variation on the same theme, which is, we really need to be giving the money to different people than we do now. Now we give the money to states, state bureaucracies, uh, largely the Department of Transportation. Some of this money goes through like the EPA and winds up in, uh, you know, revolving funds and other things at the local level that pay for sewer systems and water systems. A lot of it goes through the Department of Ag and, and, you know, winds up getting spent on, uh, the same kind of infrastructure. What we really should be doing with very few strings attached is giving this money directly to mayors or, or to mayors and city councils, to, to, to local governments. If we're going to do a surge, if we're going to spend more money channeling it through the same old systems, what we're going to get are just the worst projects that they've not been able to fund. If we actually skip those systems, give them money for maintenance, give them money for small projects, stuff below ground, right? Uh, stuff in older neighborhoods, give them that money. But if we're going to do innovative things, let's give the money to mayors. And I say mayors as like a proxy for local governments. Let's give the money to local governments. Let's give the money directly to cities, big cities, small cities, medium-sized cities. And let's not tell them what to do with it, but let's let them set their own priorities. That means some cities are going to blow it, right? Some cities are going to do really stupid things, uh, really unhelpful things. But a lot of cities are going to do some great things, some things that we never would have thought of, some things that are really going to make the world a better place. And it's that kind of innovation that uh, if we're going to be spending a trillion dollars, we really need to drive. I would avoid at all costs funding counties and, and regional entities. Uh, it's a little bit like the Strode analogy, right? When you're going really fast and you're going really slow, you're creating a lot of value. When you're in the middle uh, is when you spend a lot of money and don't get much back. The same thing goes for almost all of our infrastructure spending. When we look at counties, when we look at regional entities, they tend to have projects that are the most expensive, that actually have the lowest return on investment. When we're doing very big projects or very small projects, those are the ones that tend to uh, to have the greatest impact. Let's change our way of distributing this money and try to get as much of it as we can directly to cities and directly to mayors. If we do this, uh, and I'm not suggesting that this solves all of our problems. I'm not suggesting that this is like the, uh, the ultimate way to go. But if you're going to give me the constraints of this money's got to go out the door in the next few months, 
I don't want to go the shovel ready route. We all know what shovel ready projects are, right? Shovel ready projects are the project that got through all the bureaucracy, got through all the systems we had, got to the point where people had to actually fund it. And then people said, wait a sec, we're not going to fund that. That's, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. And so it got put on a shelf and now it's a shovel ready project. So if we're going to pump out a trillion dollars, we're going to get a lot of these projects that just aren't worth it all of a sudden become our highest priority. I think we need to, we need to do it differently. If we can prioritize maintenance, if we can do small projects, focus on things below ground and in neighborhoods over 75 years old. And as part of the carrots and sticks of this, the places that are getting money, ask them to do accrual accounting, ask them to really account for their liabilities uh, in a different way and require that they actually do a financial return on investment calculation. Uh, we can take something that, that I think stands to be one of the biggest debacles that we've embarked on in a long time, a trillion dollar infrastructure surge, and actually turn it into something that has the potential to make our cities stronger and healthier. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Try to come back to you with something again real soon. Take care, everybody. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21.